Chapter 5, beginning in verse 23, Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. In Paul's last chapter to the people of Thessalonica, Paul has addressed issues of family leadership in verses 12 and 13. Family partnership in verses 14 and 16. Family worship in verses 17 through 24. And now the focus of attention is going to be on Christian fellowship in verses 23 to 28. As a matter of fact, we have been warned to be watchful in verses 1 through 11. To be respectful to leaders in verses 12 and 13. To be mindful of one another in verses 14 and 15. To be thankful in verses 16 and 18. To be careful in worship, verses 19 through 21. And now Paul concludes with an exhortation. To be faithful in our fellowship with one another in verses 22 through 28. The idea, we are Christians. We are Christians, not cultural Christians. We are Christians who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are Christians. We realize that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. It's he who died. It's he who rose from the dead. We are Christians. We've been redeemed by God in Christ And that redemption has wrought a wonderful privilege. And the wonderful privilege is our ability to worship God and to fellowship with one another. It was the late Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, who gave a stunning, surprising, and I think the best definition of worship that I've ever read. He said, and I quote, for to worship is to quicken the conscience or to make alive the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God and to open up our heart to the love of God so that we can devote the will to the purpose of God. That captures the sentiment. We come to the end of Paul's letter and Paul is in effect saying, Goodbye. But even his goodbyes are a great deal to digest. I don't know if there's somebody in your life who talks to you on a regular basis. Um, This last year, my father died. And so I tried to spend a lot more time talking with my mother. And uh, typically we know that the conversation is going to come to an end when I say, now, mom, I've got to go. You can almost rest assured that from the moment that I say that, there's still 10 minutes left in the conversation. Now, I know that there's probably somebody like that in your life, that that just because you're ready to say goodbye, 
they're not ready to say goodbye. We are left with the impression that Paul has a very special affection, a special bond with the believers at Thessalonica. And it's amazing how quickly bonds of genuine spiritual affection can form among believers who share a common goal or a common affection to live sacrificially towards one another. And as we've made our way through these five chapters, Paul has given profuse thanks for the believers in chapter one, verses two and three. In chapter two, he expresses this overwhelming love for them in verses seven and eight. A little later, Paul shares an abiding concern for their growth and welfare in chapter three, verses four and five. And so out of that love and out of that concern comes this well of admonitions and exhortations in chapter four, verses one through three and verses nine and ten. And then we're sprinkled profusely with encouragements in chapter five all the way throughout the chapter. So Paul is in effect saying, OK, adios, goodbye, so long, farewell. But then all of a sudden he hears a voice. It's a silent voice. The voice is, is have you ever been reading and you, or, or you've heard something and you go, wait, 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 there's something else I need to know. There's just a little bit more that I need to know. Remember, in First Thessalonians chapter five, Paul has written, test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And hopefully you're going. Well, wait a minute, I know he told me to not do wicked, horrible things, but sometimes I do. I'm still thinking wicked thoughts, and maybe even sometimes I'm saying wicked things. I know he said abstain from every form of evil. We know when Paul wrote to the Corinthians later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 in 15, he warned them that that they had to stand firm against the devil and the powers that attack Christians and their families and their churches and that the devil is clever and he tries to attack in many ways and sometimes directly and sometimes more subtly. And he refers to them as the devil's schemes. And he says, you know what they are. They're me first instead of God first. They're lies instead of the truth. It's fear instead of love. It's discouragement instead of confidence and strength. It's anger instead of patience. It's condemning others instead of putting up with each other. It's being powered by your selfishness or self or by drugs or alcohol instead of being powered by the Holy Spirit. It's complaining instead of contentment. It's wanting your way instead of God's way. And so Paul is going to give a series of important information. The focus isn't on so much the goodbye, but on the God who has provided everything that we need, the God of peace. For the person who was growing up in the Greek culture and the Greek gods, for a person who was born, raised, educated in this particular culture and under these particular circumstances, 
to know and understand and embrace the God of peace was so foreign. But remember what's happened in the opening chapters. Paul has said, you've really been saved. You've come into a right relationship with God in Christ. You've believed the gospel. The truth is that you've been changed from the inside out. Your heart is beginning to change and your mind is beginning to change and your circumstances are beginning to change. And so Paul is going to give a series of reassurances towards the believer, and then he is going to close with just a few requests. The reassurances are going to be a complete sanctification for the believer, complete preservation for the believer, complete blamelessness for the believer. And that's where we're going to focus the majority of our time. He talks about the plan in the present. Look at verse 23. He says, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, right from the start, Paul places the focus of emphasis at the very beginning of the sentence. In the original language, it's, it, it reads this way. Now, himself. May the God of peace. So the focus is on the Lord alone as the source, the reservoir, the origin of all that Paul prays for the believer. Now, remember, remember, remember that prayer has included making God first and, and, and living a life of truth and love and confidence and patience and putting up with each other, being powered by the Holy Spirit, living a life of contentment, God's way, real life, confidentiality, instead of living a life of regret and shame, re- living a life of, of extending forgiveness, instead of greed, giving, instead of cursing, blessing, instead of revenge, forgiveness, instead of hateful talk, Encouragement instead of self-pity, songs of praise, instead of laziness, productiveness and watchfulness, instead of unfaithfulness, loyalty, instead of irresponsibility, dependability, and instead of being rude, being considerate. And so, Paul writes, and he says, now may the God of peace The Greek word, by the way, is Irene. It's a beautiful word in the Greek language. By the way, in the early century, the early first century of the church, when husbands and wives would get married, the three favorite names that they would name their children were Charis, which speaks of God's gifting and grace. Sometimes some people have even called them gracelets. The idea of those little tokens that that we wear of God's graciousness and mercy. The second most popular name in that world was Irene, which is this word, peace. The third most popular name was Agatha. Now, you might think, yeah, that's kind of a rotten name. Well, in in the Greek language, it meant goodness and graciousness. It was a beautiful word. And so the word means way more. Than just simply the absence of conflict. The word is loaded with the additional meanings of goodwill and contentment. It's set in opposition to the things like disorder and conflict and jealousy and irritation and confusion and and impatience. It's the opposite 
of those things. And clearly, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Clearly, Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the one who's ended the conflict between God and man by his death on the cross. And Jesus has given us peace on the inside and peace on the outside. Jesus has given us peace on the inside by the love that he's planted in our hearts and by the Holy Spirit. And these words, these words were strange words and foreign words to the Greek ear. God's plan in the present was complete sanctification and complete preservation and and complete blamelessness. And so he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now, the word sanctify means to set apart or to set for an exclusive use. Paul states God's plan in the present is to set you apart for his exclusive use. In Scripture, the idea of sanctify also includes the idea of being separate from both the root of evil and the fruit of evil. So let me help you with this. Sanctification contains two big ideas. Separation from evil... And dedication to that which is good, to that which is right, to that which is honorable. And in the New Testament, in particular, it means dedication to God. Now, I've already given you the illustration um, several weeks back that it means to take something ordinary and put it to an extraordinary use. I told you about my pot, not medical marijuana, different pot. This is a pot for brewing chai or tea. Now, it's an ordinary pot. It looks like an ordinary pot. has an ordinary handle. If you flip it over, it has Revere underneath. Not because I revere the pot. It's Paul Revere who, you know, was the guy who said the British are coming, the British are coming. But he started a foundry where he made pots. Now, this pot is not for cooking beans. It is not for cooking corn. It's not for cooking spaghetti. Love spaghetti, but it's not for that. It has one use and one use only. It is to be filled with cold, clean water. And then one single um, tea bag of, of Tetley, which is a very strong British tea, and then four bags of Lipton, and then two bags of China black tea with just the hint of peach and you put them together and you boil them for a couple of hours and then all of a sudden magic takes place. This ordinary pot becomes an extraordinary mechanism whereby I get the best tea ever. And that's the idea. God takes you and he begins to mold you and to shape you for his Exclusive use, Joseph Benson wrote, to sanctify you wholly is to complete the work of purification and renovation begun by your regeneration. Regeneration is a a word that refers to our nature. You see, you've been regenerated. 
when you recognized your sin and, and the need for a savior and you cried out to God and you said, Lord, I believe the truth about the gospel and I believe the truth about Jesus, how he died on the cross for my sin and how he rose from the dead for my sin. Jesus made the statement that if anyone comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. And the New Testament is a reoccurring theme that everyone, 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 everyone who comes to Jesus he accepts them. That's regeneration. Regeneration is a word that speaks of our nature. Justification is a word that speaks of our standing. Justification is that means that we are chosen, adopted, accepted by God. And adoption is a reference to our position. But sanctification is a word that has to do with our character and our conduct. Sanctification is a word that is linked to who we are on the inside and what we do on the outside. In justification, we're declared righteous in order that in sanctification, we may become righteous. Justification is what God does for us, while sanctification is what God does in us, justification puts us into a right relationship with God, while sanctification exhibits the fruit of that, re of that relationship. Now, think about it. The fruit of that relationship is a life that's separated from sin and dedicated to God. It really is that simple. And the word holy, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, or completely. The word holy or completely means complete in every part, perfect in every respect as it relates to the entire individual. This word in the original language where it says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That word completely is only appears in this chapter and in this verse in all of the New Testament. To you, it looks like the ordinary word, completely, as my friend Raul Race says. But it comes from two compound words that means through and through. Have you ever stained something that it became so profoundly stained that it literally permeated the fabric or the content of whatever the stain took place. In, in other words, in order to deal with it, you would have to destroy it. That's how thoroughly, thoroughly soaked and stained it was. You were thoroughly soaked. You were thoroughly stained. You were drenched and drenched again in the very pores of your being. You were an animosity and sinfulness against God antagonistically, hopelessly, forever, unfortunately, estranged from God. And because you were so wickedly entrenched in sin, you needed to be thoroughly purged. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He purges you through and through. And so... Someday the believer will be complete in every department of character. There will be no Christian grace absent or missing. And so complete in the spirit 
links us to heaven and complete in the body links us to the earth. But complete in the soul links us to both earth and heaven because it is in your soul. That is where you think. That is where you speak. That is where your mind and your affections are. And so in verse 22, remember what Paul said, abstain from every form of evil. And for the thoughtful person, for the careful person, for the for the person who's done some deep, deep soul searching, you know that you're thoroughly wicked. In what you say. And what you think. And what you do. You want God first, but everything inside of you wants me first. You want truth, but you settle for lies. You want love, but you embrace fear. You want confidence, but you live in a world of discouragement. You want patience, but you give way to anger. You want to put up with others, but then you wind up condemning others for the very thing that you do. My brothers, it ought not to be that way. Because you see, we've been given three champions. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father has overcome the world. The Son has overcome the devil. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. This is why you can be purged, completely sanctified in every area of your life. This is the idea What Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, sanctification is that condition in which the sin principle is dealt with. Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? Lord, deal with my sin. Do you realize that when you pray that prayer, you're asking God to sanctify you? To purge you? To cleanse you? And so when Paul mentions the spirit, the soul, and the body, a lot of people have used this verse to argue that human beings are a threefold being. They speak of, you know, body, soul, and spirit. And, but that becomes a clue even in and of itself. Usually when people speak, they speak body, soul, and spirit. They reverse the order. You begin with the body. You continue with the soul. You end with the spirit. But the Bible, the emphasis in the Bible is You begin with the spirit. You continue with the soul. Sin has reversed the order. We're preoccupied with ourself and with our body and with our physical needs. Now, clearly. Our spirit is that which gives us the ability to have communication, friendship with God. On my radio program last week, somebody called me and asked the question, you know, what's the difference between the spirit and the soul? Remember in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the word of God is able to divide between the spirit and the soul. Where is this division? Where is the frontier between the spirit and the soul? And let me help you with that. The spirit is that which comes to life the moment you receive Christ. The spirit of your spirit born again, the spirit inside of you is that which gives you the ability to relate to God and communicate with God and have friendship and relationship with God. Our soul has more to do with our emotion and our desire and our affection and our propensity. And we see we sometimes we think that that's our spirit. 
But it's not true. Your soul is everything that is that cluster of internal and invisible things. Emotion, desire, affection, will. The body is the house in which the person dwells. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes about the fact that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That the presence of God lives inside of us. And so Paul wants us, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Paul's point seems to be that God is interested in sanctifying the whole person. The whole believer. Paul wants us to turn away from everything that is sinful and everything that is defiling to our spirit, to our soul, to our body. And so he speaks of a of a complete preservation, because how would God sanctify them? You know, again, Paul is anticipating the question. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Lord, get me out of here. Lord, I just want to be out of this relationship, or I want to be out of this job, or I want to be out of this cesspool. Lord, I'm beginning to reek and stink from the stench that I, I find myself immersed from. Get me out of here. And so they're wondering, is Paul saying that God is going to get us out of here? Well, remember in the earlier chapter, he talked about the rapture. But here, I'm going to make a suggestion to you. When Paul says, may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. The word preserved means to watch over. It means to guard. It means to keep. The idea is we preserve our spirit against anything that would defile us, against that which would hinder the testimony of the Holy Spirit or would hinder our fellowship with God. Remember, your spirit is that which relates to God and communicates to God. And so your spirit becomes, in effect, hindered or defiled, if you will, when things begin to happen that hinder your ability to enter into and continue fellowship with God or worship of God. And clearly we're to keep our souls from evil thoughts in Matthew 15, 18, Ephesians 2, 3. Our carnal, our fleshly appetites that war against our souls, 1 Peter 2, 11. Now remember what your flesh is. It's everything that you are apart from Christ. It is your affections, desires, emotions that you might even think are good. Healthy. But for whatever reason, they distance you from God. And so we are to keep our souls from contention and strife. We're to keep our bodies from being defiled. Remember what it just said. One little chapter over in chapter four, verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. The idea being, again... Anything that would defile your body from its appropriate uses or evil uses. It, it uses the term in Romans chapter 6, verse 19. 
Lenski writes, quote, many Christians are satisfied with a partial Christianity. Some parts of their life are still worldly. The apostolic admonitions constantly prod unto all the corners of our nature so that none escape purification. And here is the, the real key. God has purified us in Christ. God is in the process of purifying us and God will completely purify us. So what does all of this mean? Sanctification is something that takes place in the past. It continues to take place in the present and will continue to take place in the future. As a matter of fact, preservation was a word that was often used to describe countermeasures to to prevent assaults from enemies. And so we have three enemies, Satan, our flesh, the world. Now, remember, everything that we are apart from Christ is our flesh. The world is that evil world system that stands in opposition to Christ and God. So, again, two of our enemies are from the outside, the world and the flesh, excuse me, the world and the devil. One of our enemies is on the inside. Our own stinking desires. Now, isn't this interesting? Because the Father has overcome the world. The Son has overcome the devil. And the Holy Spirit overcomes our flesh. So now, what are we to think about that? That as monstrous as this world is, as evil and conniving as the schemes of Satan are, as persistent and wicked as the flesh is. You've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness and the knowledge of your Savior. You've been, you've been given everything. You are completely sanctified. You are completely preserved. And so again, this presupposes that Paul understands and believes that Christians, guess what? Are going to live in this world. We're going to be living in this world. You, you're going to have to eat, sleep, drink, and function. You're going to have to work in this world. The promise of the Lord is to insulate His people through the spiritual battle, not isolate them from the battle. And I would encourage you to reread Ephesians chapter 6. So, complete sanctification, complete preservation, but look now, complete blamelessness. Look what it says. Preserved. Blameless. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, follow Paul's logic. Complete sanctification and complete preservation leads to a complete blamelessness. When Jesus returns for his people, Jesus is going to show up for you. Free from sin, void of fault, free from condemnation, free from guilt. And I know what you're thinking. Is, that, is such a thing possible? Yeah. And Paul brings special attention to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says. At the coming of our Lord 
Jesus. He is coming. Now, remember, remember, in the first chapter, Paul linked the coming of Jesus with our salvation in verse 10. In the second chapter, Paul linked the coming of Jesus with our service in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. In the third chapter, Paul linked the coming of Jesus with our sorrow in verse 18 of chapter 4. In the fifth chapter now, here in verse 23, Paul links the coming of Jesus with our sanctification. The fact that Jesus is coming back is he is going to make good everything that he has promised. The coming of Jesus is related to our salvation, related to our service, related to our stability or security, related when we're overcome with sorrow and related to our sanctification. So how does something ordinary become extraordinary? It's when it's set apart for God. An ordinary pot. An ordinary vessel. A.W. Tozer writes, For thy sake, for your sake, will rescue the little, empty things from vanity and give them eternal meaning. What Tozer is saying is that the moment that you decide to pray a prayer, Heavenly Father, I'm doing this for your sake. I'm opening up my Bible for your sake. I am going to church for your sake. I am doing this for your sake. Instead of me first, it's you first for your sake. Instead of lies, it's truth for your sake. Instead of fear, it's love for your sake. Instead of living a life of discouragement, I'm going to live a life of confidence and strength for your sake. Instead of anger, patience, instead of condemning others, I'm going to put up with others for your sake. Now, all of a sudden, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. Paul, uh, A.W. Tozer writes, he says, quote, the lowly paths of routine living will will by these words be elevated to the level of a bright highway. The humdrum of our daily lives will take on the quality of a worship service and a thousand irksome duties we must perform will become offerings and sacrifices that are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And I'm going to pause in the quote for just a moment and give you a way of thinking about that. Probably as a mother, when you changed a diaper, you never thought, I'm going to change this for Jesus' sake. You're thinking, I'm going to do this for the baby's sake. And trust me, the baby's happy and glad that you did it. But guess what? You can do it for Jesus' sake. You can clean the carpet for Jesus' sake. You can scrub the floor for Jesus' sake. You can answer the telephone for Jesus' sake. Every mundane and little thing that you do, all of a sudden when you devote it to Christ and you do it as unto Christ, it becomes an act of worship. Tozer writes, and I I quote, (laughs) he says, To God there are no small offerings if they are made in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in the New Testament when Jesus is at the temple treasury and he sees the rich people loading up the agape boxes with all kinds of wealth. And Jesus pays particular attention to an older lady who comes and she has two small copper coins and she puts them in the box and she looks around and she places them in the box. And Jesus draws special attention to the fact 
that those who gave earlier gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of the very thing that was necessary in order for her to live. You know what's incredible? Not simply that she gave out of her very need. That's incredible in and of itself. But what's also incredible is that Jesus was watching. Jesus was watching. Jesus watches you when you come into this building, even though you may be unaware of it. Jesus watches you when you speak. And Jesus watches you when you come through the door. And Jesus watches you when you give at the agape box. Jesus is watching and watching. And then here's what it's. A.W. Tozer says, conversely, nothing appears great to him that is given for any other reason than for Jesus sake. Well, look at this enormous gift I'm giving. Who cares if it's not done for Jesus' sake? Well, I'm paying off the mortgage. Who cares if it's not given in Jesus' done for Jesus' sake? I'm underwriting the children's ministry. Who cares if it's not done for Jesus' sake? You see, if you give in order to bring attention to yourself or glorify yourself or enlarge yourself, who cares? Isn't that amazing? To God, there are no small offerings if they're made in the name of Jesus. Isn't it amazing that no matter how large your offering is, if it's not done for Jesus' sake, it becomes a meaningless expression. The second richest man, Warren Buffett, gave the richest man in the world all of his money. I know what you're thinking. How, is that smart? I know you might have been thinking, why not me? Why not put me on the Warren Buffett wish list? But if the second richest man gives the first richest man everything that he has, but he's not doing it to know and love and honor and express worship to God, then it becomes a meaningless statement. That's the plan in the present. Complete sanctification. Complete preservation. Complete blamelessness. And look at the plan for the future in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. Who also will do it. The believer will stand before Jesus. Completely sanctified. Completely preserved. Completely blameless. How is this possible? Because he who calls you is faithful. He will do it. In chapter 4, verse 3, we learn again that our sanctification is God's will. We'll stand before him. Remember what it says in Philippians 1, 6. The Lord God, having begun the work in us, will see it to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, having begun in the spirit, he will see it to the finish line. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes... And you, and if you have a Bible, you might turn there. Colossians 1, 21 through 23, it says, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. Jesus brought you back in the body of his flesh through death. Jesus did it by a sacrifice to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Jesus did it to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. And here's the three other words that are important. In his sight. You know, my husband thinks I'm stupid. Jesus thinks you're holy and blameless and above reproach. 
My wife thinks I'm a jerk. It may be true, but guess what? Jesus sees you as holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Well, you know, I don't even know if that person is a Christian. I mean, look at the way they're acting. Look at the lies and look at the fear and look at the anger and look at the condemning of others and look at their alcohol and drug addiction and look at how they're always complaining and look about the death and the gossip and the regret and the shame and the greed and the cursing and the revengeful and the hateful talk and the self-pity and the laziness and the unfaithfulness and the irresponsibility and the being rude and the worry and the anxiety and the envy and the rage and the sexual immorality. Guess what? God is at work. And some of you are going at a very slow rate. But you know what I have to believe? That you're going at a rate nonetheless. Paul wrote, If indeed you continue in the faith and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. We're free because he who called you is faithful. We're free. Well, does this negate our responsibility to walk in godliness or does it negate our responsibility to walk in holiness? Of course not. But it must mean that God will provide in Christ Everything that we need. Do you understand what I just said? God will provide in Christ everything that we need. There is a sense in which sanctification is past because Jesus died. It is present because, guess what? The ongoing work continues inside of you. And future because it will come to fruition. And Paul gives a series of requests. Now the focus shifts from the work of God in the believer to the qualities that mark loyal friendship. Paul, in effect, says regular intercession in verse 25, responsible affection in verse 26, diligent devotion in verse 27 to the word of God. Paul ends the letter the same way he began it. Grace to you and peace. It began with a note of grace. It will end with a note of grace. And so it begins, he says in verse 25, Brethren, pray for us. And for most of us, this has descended into a kind of an almost Christian cliche. Hey, is there anything you need? Yeah, you can pray for me. But I don't think Paul meant it as a cliche. We're hard pressed to understand that prayer becomes a source of strength and stability. When Paul says, brethren, pray for us, the idea is that Paul is counting on the prayers of his friends. And have you ever stopped to think about how important your prayers are to the well-being of everyone that you're praying for? Heavenly Father, I pray for my mother. I pray for my father. I pray for my brothers and my sisters. I pray for my husband. I pray for my wife. I pray for my children. I pray for this president. I pray for this Congress. I pray for this government. I pray for these judges. I pray for the leaders. I pray for the pastor. I pray for the staff. I pray for these people that God has placed in a position of authority and responsibility. I pray for them. Paul knows something. Paul knows something that you never outgrow the need of earnest effective prayers and Paul knows something else that praying for people making intercession for people something happens that's supernatural let me just put it to you bluntly Paul knows that praying 
for people, making intercession for people we love and making intercession for people we're not particularly fond of will make us fond of them. When you pray for them, you'll begin to care about them. Paul knows when we're least likely to pray. When we feel full and satisfied. But when are you most likely to pray? When the pressure's coming. It's pressing. Paul knew that when the saints pray, this is going to come as a shock. When the saints pray, we get what we pray for. Or something better. Do you understand what I just said? We get what we pray for. Or something better. My dad. He followed the saints. When they first went to New Orleans. My father said. Um, I'm telling you right now. The saints will never win a Super Bowl. It will be a cold day in hell. When the saints win a Super Bowl. And I thought. The day they won the Super Bowl. Washington was completely frozen over. And I thought, I wonder if my dad was, had a little bit of a prophetic unction on him. He says in verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. In the Middle East, as well as in other places, it's not unusual for people to greet each other with a kiss. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of affection. And, and in the Middle East, men kiss the men and women kiss the women. And I know what some of you are thinking. Yuck. One Bible translator took the custom and translated it this way. He said, give a holy handshake to everyone in the brotherhood. And I like that because it captures the meaning. The idea is the greeting is live and in person. We're, we're to welcome one another with warmth and affection and sincere enthusiasm. We greet one another. Paul is making reference to a holy kiss. And I think here it speaks of sincerity and the absence of immorality. The important thing is that the greeting is holy. It's free from hypocrisy or sin or partiality. There's one thing I need you to do. When people come to our church, I need you to say, well, let me put to you what I need you not to say. When someone new comes to our church, this is what you don't say. You don't go, what are you doing here? You know, when somebody says that to you, what's your immediate thought? Do you feel welcome? Do you feel warm? When someone extends their hand to you and smiles and says, I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. That's the point that he's making. And then he ends in verse 27. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Now, this is going to come as a shock and a surprise. Read it again. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. He's urging that the letter be read by all Christians. The charge, by the way, means I adjure or it means to bind with an oath or a promise. 
And I suspect this is one of the clues that gives me an idea that Paul wrote this letter to the elders or the leaders. He's writing it to the elders and the leaders, and he's charging them to make a holy promise to read the letter to the congregation. I did it. I read it to you. But. But I want to I want to remind you of something. That if for some reason you weren't here and you didn't hear all that was read, read it for yourself. Read it for yourself. What if you can't read? Well, then you know what? We have tapes and CDs. I know people don't use tapes anymore. I'm so I'm so I'm like hopelessly stuck in the 70s. I hate that about myself. We have modern technology. You can download this information. One Bible writer said the charge to read the letter publicly would be a guarantee that the concerns of the letter would be heard by the entire congregation so that those who could not read would likewise receive its message. This practice of reading the letters aloud may have had a great deal to do with their ultimate incorporation into the canon of Scripture. Paul invests the letter with the authority of God and he says, I want you to read it. Now, clearly, the issue isn't whether or not we should read it. The real question is, why would he even include this exhortation? Is it possible that some couldn't read it? Is it possible that some were homebound or bedridden? Was it possible that some of the the saints didn't have access? Was it possible that the saints were meeting in secret for fear of persecution? Whatever the reason, the answer has to be, in part, that Paul is reminding them that we've got to get the word of God to them. In other words, he tells them, Paul's plea in part is that we read and receive from the same body of truth. Real friends point each other back to the truth. And back to the Bible. Now, it may seem so simple to you. Paul points out that the three keys to Christian fellowship... We pray for one another. We love one another. We read and study the same body of truth. You mean it's really that simple? I got to tell you something. If you pray on a regular basis and you love on a regular basis and you read the Bible on a regular basis, you'll be transformed. He doesn't end with prayer and love and study. He reminds them of a lasting grace. Look at verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He begins and ends the same way. The root word of grace refers to those things that produce wholeness and wellness, things that promote favor and beauty and gratitude and kindness and generosity that benefits others. Grace is always undeserved. Grace is always immeasurable. Grace is always unearned. Grace cannot be repaid. From the biblical standpoint, grace is the favor of God lavished on the undeserved, bestowed on people who are good for one thing and one thing only condemnation and judgment but you didn't get condemnation and judgment you got hope you got forgiveness in Christ you know we want grace so much in our life 
but were so reluctant to give it to others. Bishop J.C. Ryle reminded his congregation almost 200 years ago, contend to the death for the truth that no man is a true Christian who is not converted and is not a holy man. But allow that a man may be converted. Allow that a man may have a new heart. Allow that a man may be a holy man, yet liable to infirmity, to doubt, to fear. I like that. Do you know what he's saying? Make no mistake about it. When Jesus comes, he changes you. But be patient with each other. Be patient when you're changing the diaper. Be patient. Be patient. Because one day your power will become God's power. Are you struggling with sexual immorality? Guess what? Sexual immorality can become sexual fidelity. Do you use others? Guess what? You can sacrifice for others. Are you jealous? Envious? You can have an abundant heart. Are you filled with worry? You can rest. Are you rude? You can be considerate. How? Because God is willing to change your mind. And he's willing to change your heart. And when he changes your mind and when he changes your heart, he'll change the direction that you go. And now, adios. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we have read the book of 1 Thessalonians and Paul gave us a look at the reputation of the church in chapter 1. And Paul gave us a look at a review of the church in chapter 2. And we caught a glimpse of the removal of the church in chapter 4. And, and we looked long and hard at the responsibilities of the church in chapter 5. But Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray for each and every person here. That the God of peace has become their peace. That Jesus, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has come into their hearts and their lives and that they've made peace with God. And Lord, I pray that they would be willing to extend that peace. Lord, for that person who's living right now in regret and shame, Lord, I pray that you would extend to them forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that that forgiveness would be extended to others who have hurt them. Lord, we know the first rule of insult. <laughs> it's to find out who's been insulted. And then to get over it. Particularly if it's me. Lord, you've been so gracious and so kind and so patient with me. It seems like such a small thing to be gracious and kind with others. Lord, help us become men and women who love you and serve you and who are grown and changing. Lord, we want to dedicate ourselves to you. Lord, we want to free ourselves from sin. Lord, we want to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit has already begun. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.